0: Father, we thank you for your great love that you have for this world. I thank you for the way in which you are extending love and compassion in very practical Ways to young girls caught up in sex trafficking through the work of Saving Innocence and through Nancy and through many others who are engaged in that work. And we just ask, God, that you would continue to pour out your blessing and provision upon that ministry, and we pray that they would continue to do good work of releasing these young girls from such horrific situations. And I pray, God, that you would use us to partner with them. And we ask God that as we now together open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and make us attentive to your voice. We ask that in hearing your voice, we might be changed. And in being changed, we might become shaped and molded to be your agents of love in this world. And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So I wanted to begin this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever read something in the Bible that you wish wasn't there? You know, maybe it was for you, it seems unscientific, or maybe it seemed regressive, or maybe it ran against your own cultural sensibilities, and maybe you didn't know if it was okay for you to even speak it out loud, you were kind of afraid to share your thoughts with other Christians, because they might think that you're not a very good Christian, but in your honest moments, you found yourself wondering, like, does the Bible really say this, and do, do we believe this? Well, this morning, we're going to be looking together at a text that falls into that category for many of us in this room. And uh, the text is uh, actually found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, and it says this. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, I love the Bible. And I have been teaching the Bible for many years. I've, I've spent my life in the Bible. I, I, I've been reading the Bible and studying the Bible almost daily for the last, you know, 25 years of my life. And I long for you, if you're new to Christianity, I want you to come into contact with the wisdom, the transcendence, the power of this ancient, sacred, divinely inspired text. But I have to be honest, there are moments, there are times, there are places in the Bible that I find difficult and troubling. And I find myself asking, what does this mean? And can we really accept this in our day and age? And what is, how are we supposed to read this and embrace this? What does this even mean? And so this morning, what I want you to do, and maybe this is just for those of you who find yourself in that place wrestling with those questions, I want us just to engage in three different questions this morning. Number one, I want us to simply ask what do we do when we come into context, when we come into contact with claims in scripture statements in scripture that run against our own cultural sensibilities sometimes even our own moral sensibilities and then second we're going to ask the question what do we do with this specific text I mean what does this mean what is Paul saying here and then thirdly we want to ask how does this text shape and form and challenge us who are followers of Jesus and so does that sound like a good thing to do today Alright, whether you this is what we got, so this is what we're doing. So we're gonna so let's just ask that question. What do you do? What do I do when we come into contact with some claim in scripture that runs against maybe our own moral or cultural sensibilities? Well, I want you to consider two possibilities. First, I want you to consider the possibility that maybe you have misunderstood the text. Maybe you find yourself thinking, my goodness, does the Bible really say this? Does it really claim this? But the real issue is is that you haven't actually understood what the Bible is saying. And maybe if you go below a superficial reading of the text, maybe the situation changes. Now, I, I grant that sometimes we pretend that the Bible is unclear because we can't stomach what the Bible clearly does say. Soren Kierkegaard put the matter like this. He said, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. (laughs) We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything else except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible. To ensure that we can be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship. What would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. Now, I can sympathize with Kierkegaard. And, you know, it's true. Sometimes we don't have an appetite for what the Bible says. We just can't stomach it. And I do think that quite often we are a bunch of scheming swindlers. But I also think that the matter isn't always so simple. You see, the Bible is often clear, it's often easy to understand, but very often it's not clear, and it's not easy to understand. This is an ancient text that was written in a different language, in a different time, in a different place in history. You know, it's been said that the Bible is written for us, but it wasn't originally written to us. And so it takes time to kind of enter into a foreign text, a foreign culture, foreign languages to kind of understand the depth of what's being said. And even then it can be difficult. You know, uh, there's one of the followers of Jesus, one of the first followers of Jesus was Peter. And Peter also was an author of a couple books in the New Testament. And Peter makes a comment about the writings of Paul. And do you know what he says? He says, you know, um, sometimes he says uh, there are these men that take the, the writings of Paul that he says are difficult sometimes to understand, and they twist them. Now, let me just ask you, if the Apostle Peter, you know, one of the inner circle with Jesus, found some of the writings of the Apostle Paul difficult, how do you think you're going to do? You know, and uh, so, so sometimes the Bible is tricky, it's difficult, we have to go deeper and kind of go below a surface reading of the scripture to come and to understand the fulsome meaning of the text. And a great example of this is the issue of slavery. You know, sometimes people superficially will read the Bible, they'll come across a text like, slaves, obey your masters, and they say, see, you know, the Bible condones slavery. You know, what an awful, awful text. You know, the Bible, uh, it condones slavery, But actually, when you go below a surface level reading and you study the Bible as a whole, what you discover is that running through the entire narrative of the Bible is an ethic of liberation. And that at the heart of the Old Testament, the very founding story in the Bible is a story of God's action to liberate slaves. And the only book of the Bible that actually directly addresses the issue, it's called Philemon. And there Paul calls for Philemon to actually forgive a slave that stole money from him and ran away. And to no longer treat him as a slave, but actually as a brother, as a part of the family. Which if anyone in the first century heard somebody say something like that, they would say that is absolutely subversive and revolutionary. If we did that kind of thing, Philemon, the whole institution of slavery would fall apart. And of course, it was these texts and these stories that provided the fuel for the abolitionist movement on both sides of the Atlantic. And so, you know, there are superficial readings of Scripture. And of course, even in the early American history, slaveholders were like those ignorant and unstable men that Peter refers to, and they twisted the Bible and they used it to justify slavery while the abolitionists used the Bible to denounce it. And of course, the white supremacists in the early part of the 20th century were ignorant and unstable, and so they used the Bible to justify Jim Crow, but of course, Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement used the Bible and the stories in the scripture to denounce it. And so simply a superficial reading will not do. We need a more faithful reading of the text of scripture. And so I want you to consider the possibility that maybe when you come into contact with something that initially runs against the grain of you, maybe the Bible isn't actually saying what you think it's saying, and if you go below the surface, you might discover something new. Now, you also need to consider a second possibility. You need to consider the possibility that maybe the Bible is saying something that runs against your cultural sensibilities, and it is indeed saying it, and you just don't like it. And of course, in those moments, we have to have the humility to say that this is a text that doesn't simply mirror and parrot the concerns of every culture or of any particular culture and time and place. Rather, this is a word from outside of our culture and our time and our place. And as a word from outside of us, sometimes it convicts us, it confronts us, it exposes us, it challenges us, it calls us into a different way of life. And friends, this is good news because I don't know about you, but as I look around our culture today, there are areas in our culture, in our world, in, in you know, kind of twenty-first century modern American culture, that are good, that are life-giving, that actually resonate. There are values within our culture that resonate with Scripture, but there are other things that are actually destructive and dehumanizing, and that actually have a negative effect on human life. And actually, if I were looking for kind of, if I were going to distill all of the wisdom of 21st century life in middle-class America into kind of like a a bunch of principles, I don't think that it's those principles that are going to be the source of of a life that's marked by human flourishing. There are some ways in which we're like that and some ways that we're not. And so we need a word from outside of us to confront us at times, to challenge us and to give us hope. But now let's talk about this passage, right? You say, okay, I can consider the possibility that maybe we've misunderstood the text. I can consider that maybe, you know, the text claims one thing and uh, that sometimes it does confront us. But what about this one? This one just seems... Strange. So look again at the text, verse 34. The women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, quite frankly, Paul here sounds like an insecure authoritarian. He sounds a bit mis- chauvinistic, a bit uh, misogynistic, uh, like he doesn't want the women, you know, to get too much power, so we've got to keep them in their place, keep them quiet. But what I want to argue right now, I actually want to build an argument. And what I want to argue is that Paul is not a male, male chauvinist. He is not a misogynist. He's not down on women. He's not trying to keep women in their place. Actually, when you look at the Apostle Paul in the broader context of his writings, you find something radically different. In fact, if, if what you think is that Paul is simply trying to silence the voice of women in the community of faith, then you haven't been listening to what Paul says. Now listen very carefully. This passage comes within a larger argument that runs from chapter 11 all the way to chapter 14. And in these four chapters, Paul is dealing with the subject of what Christians do when they gather together for worship. And here he comes to the tail end of it, and he makes this statement, but do you know what he says at the very beginning of this this section about when they come together as the church? Do you know what he talks about? He talks about women getting up and praying and prophesying in the gathered assembly of believers. In other words, women would get up when the church came together, and they would pray publicly, and they would at times speak words of prophecy, which we saw last week were words of exhortation and encouragement and comfort. Now, wouldn't it be really odd if at the end of the same section, he directly contradicts something he said earlier in the section? In fact, when Paul introduces the idea of women prophesying in the gathered assembly of believers, he says he commended them because they observed the traditions that he had passed on to them. And it's almost certainly the case, and this is what all the scholars in First Corinthians think, is that, is that the traditions that he handed over to them was this tradition of empowering women to have a role in the public assembly of believers. In fact, if you keep kind of digging into this broader section about what happens when the church gathers together, Paul, a little bit later, says that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, the Spirit of God works among the people of God in order to build us up in love. And there's a variety of ways in which the Spirit uses different people in the body of Christ to bless and build up the body. And... When Paul talks about the distribution of the work of the Spirit among us, he doesn't say that the Spirit gifts men in one way and a woman in another way. The gifts are not given out according to gender. They're given out according to the will of the sovereign Spirit of God, who gives out gifts as He desires. And so Paul is not, he's not saying in this text that that women are simply to remain silent in the gathered assembly. No, he said no, women were to get up and prophesy and to pray in public. They were to speak words of edification and exhortation and comfort. They weren't to remain silent. They were to pray in public, not to remain silent. In fact, if you go a little bit further, we just keep pressing this further with Paul, Paul believed and he taught what Jesus believed and taught about men and women, and that's that men and women were equally created in the image of God, and that from the beginning it was not the job of men to rule over women, rather from the beginning it was the job of men and women together to partner and rule over creation. And of course, it was Paul who made that extraordinary revolutionary statement in his day that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one equally in Christ Jesus. And of course, when you study the book of Acts, when you read the writings of Paul, what you discover is that Paul had all kinds of female partners in ministry, Ones that he would greet at the end of his letters and say, Greet, you know, Junia and the house that, and, the, and the church that meets in her house. You think the women that hosted these house churches were just silent in the church all the time? No, Paul was taking here a card from Jesus who lifted the status of women and included them in his band of disciples. And of course, it was women who were the first public witnesses speaking about the resurrection. And so the New Testament, in fact, you know, early, early social historian of the ancient world named Rodney Stark, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And in that book, what he argues is that as Christianity spread and grew, the group that it grew among the fastest were women. And that's because in a culture where women were marginalized and disenfranchised and taken advantage of and looked down upon, in the midst of that culture, Christianity in a unique way lifted the status of women and it empowered them in ways that were unheard of up until that point in time in human history. Now I grant the church has not always been faithful to that witness. And the church has always been half Christian at best and sometimes it hasn't even been that. And so sometimes the church has used and abused women. But what I want you to see is that's not faithful to Jesus, nor to Paul, nor to the witness of the New Testament. Well, you say, okay, so what does this verse mean? (laughs) You know, when I was in seminary, I had a a professor of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of Bible interpretation. And he said, the three most important rules of interpreting scripture are context, context, context. A text without a context is a pretext for a preacher saying whatever he wants to say. And so if you want to understand the meaning of words, you need to look at them in the context of sentences, or the meaning of sentences in the context of paragraphs, or the meaning of paragraphs in the context of arguments. So how does this statement, how does this paragraph fit in the larger context of Paul's argument? Now, I'm gonna get a little bit technical here, but we have to, okay? Like, I, 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 I just don't think there's any, if, if you wanna do more than simply have a superficial reading of the Bible, you actually want to be faithful to what the Bible says and be a thoughtful, faithful interpreter, you gotta kinda get down in the weeds at times. So we're just gonna get a little bit technical and I'm gonna present to you an argument that uh, I learned from a a commentator, the best, in my opinion, the best commentator on the text of uh, 1 Corinthians, whose name is Anthony Thistleton. So are you ready to go down into the weeds for a minute? You said we've been in the weeds, Josh, all morning. Well, let's just go a little deeper. So the first observation we need to make about the broader context is the broader argument of this section is not about the role of women in church. Paul is not building an argument about gender distinctions in this section. Instead, Paul is talking about what builds up the church. You see, the church gatherings in Corinth were a mess. They were absolutely chaotic. This was Christians gone wild. And if you were on a business trip or you were on vacation or spring break or whatever in Corinth, and it was Sunday and you text, you sent Paul a text and you said, Paul, tell me, you know, I'm looking for a good church. Where should I go to church this morning? Paul would say, I don't have anything for you. Because he told that church to go, he says, when you gather together, it's going to be for your worse than for your better. And so he says, you know, it'd probably be better for you just to stay home and read the Bible at home because that church is a mess. And so he writes to give them guidance about when they gather together. And his chief concern, and he says what our chief concern and what their chief concern should be when you gather together is that the church would be built up. And so notice how he repeats this idea three times in chapter 14. Notice verse 5. He says, The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in a tongue, unless someone interprets. Why? So that the church would be built up. Do you see his concern is that the church would be encouraged and, and built up in love. And then notice verse 12. He says, so with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And then again, verse 26, what then brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. And then he concludes at verse 40, he says, but all things should be done decently and in order. Do you see, Paul is not giving a discourse here on the unique and distinct role of women in the church. Rather, he's talking about what is it that builds up the church when you come together. And for Paul and for us, he says, this, look. What is it that will build you up when you come together? And I want you to notice the second thing. So the first thing I want you to notice is the broader context is not about the role of women in a church or how you can put a woman in her place or whatever, you know, thing. Instead, he says, what builds up the church? Secondly, I want you to see that for Paul, what builds up the church is a readiness to speak and also a willingness to be silent. And so he emphasizes this again and again. He says, look, you need to be at times ready and open to God to use you to speak, but you also at times need to be willing to be silent. And notice he talks about this in three areas. First is in the area of speaking in tongues, verse 27. If anyone speak in a tongue, again, he's talking about speaking, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone else interpret, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church. Do you hear the, the reference to both speech and silence? To build up the church, you need a readiness to speak and be moved by the Spirit, but you also need a willingness to keep silent. And then after tongues, he speaks about prophecy. And again, he mentions speech and silence. Verse 29, let two or, at the most, or, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what was said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So again, after tongues, he says, you know, where he says speech and be silent, then he talks about prophecy. He says you, you need a readiness to speak and also a willingness to be silent. And then he moves to a third area, which is the weighing or the discernment of prophecies. And so if you were here last week, By the way, if you weren't here last week, you need to go back and listen to the sermon from last week and learn all about prophecy. If you want to learn about tongues, you can go back to the week before that. We talked about tongues. But what we saw last week about prophecy is that a prophetic word is when God puts something in somebody's mind that they speak to others. And so it might be a verse, it might be a burden, it might be a a thought or an idea or an, an insight. And you speak that forth to others. But Paul says, look, when you do that, you also need to weigh what is said. You shouldn't just accept everything hook, line, and sinker. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. And hold fast to that which is true. And so he speaks about this third area after tongues and prophecy. He talks about weighing of prophecies. And again, he talks about speech and silence. Again, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, but let the others weigh what is said. And then again, he talks about silence a little bit later. So then, again, it's like you speak, but then you need to let your words be open to the discernment of the community. And so do you see the kind of broader argument that he's building here? He's saying, look, if you want to build up the church, you need a willingness to speak and also a a readiness to remain silent. And then a little bit later in verse 36, he says this. He says, or was it from you that the word of God has come? Or are you the only one it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. So the sense that you get is that here's somebody who's all arrogant, and they're like, I, I can, I, I spoke my, my word to, God put this on my heart, I shared it with the church, and then somebody weighed and sifted what I said, and they challenged me. And Paul says, well, if you're spiritual, and if you're a prophet, you need to have the humility to submit yourself to my authority. And so again, there he's talking kind of about this issue of weighing prophecies in light of the revelation that was given to the church through the apostles, the authoritative apostles. And then sandwiched in between two statements about the weighing of the prophecies is this statement about women speaking and also remaining silent in the church. Do you see that in the text? So what was he talking about here? I think, again, it's another area of speech and silence in the context of the wane of the prophecies. In fact, you know, when you look down at verse 33, it says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And if you have an ESV Bible like I do, they put the next statement attached to the statement about women as in all the churches of the saints, and then it connects it with the verse 34. But you could equally, and for good reason, attach that statement to the previous one. And then he says this the women should keep silent in the churches. Now, again, let's get down in the weeds. Paul talks about women remaining silent, and if they have a question, they should ask their husbands at home. The word in Greek that's translated woman is the same word in Greek that's translated wife. The word in Greek that's translated man is the same Greek word that's translated husband. And so the context needs to determine whether or not you translate it wife or husband. And I think the context gives us every reason to translate woman in verse 34 as wife, just as the text translates man in verse 35 as husbands. And so then what do you have? Okay, now let me just kind of draw it all together. You guys ready for me to draw it together? Nothing up my sleeves. (laughs) Paul says, look. When you, if, 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 if God puts something on your heart and you share it, a prophetic word is shared. Allow your prophetic word to be discerned, to be judged, to be questioned by the community. And, but he says, but during that space of weighing and testing the prophecies, he says, let the wives of the guy who spoke the prophetic word remain silent. And if they want to question their husband, actually that word question can be interrogate, if they want to interrogate their husbands, do it at home. Why? Well, because in an honor shame culture, it would be a dramatic, a radical shame, public shame, for a wife to publicly call into question and interrogate her husband in front of a group of people. And you know how the rest of the group would feel if a wife got up and started to interrogate her husband's prophetic word in the gathered assembly? You know how everyone else in the church would feel? Awkward. And it wouldn't build up the church. I mean, that was true, especially in the ancient world. That's an honor-shame culture. But could you imagine if, you know, as I'm speaking, Alicia stood up in the middle of my sermon. She said, whoa, whoa, wait a second, Josh. You know, come on. Like, you're going to say that? And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm totally embarrassed and shamed publicly before you all. Now, don't get, she, don't get me wrong. Sometimes she does interrogate me at home about things I've said from the pulpit, Right? but she loves and honors and respects me. And so she's not aiming to publicly humiliate me in front of the church. And I think that is what Paul is talking about. He is not putting a moratorium on women speaking. No, women got up and spoke to God in public. They prayed. Women got up and they spoke, you know, words of encouragement, exhortation, instruction. They shared things in public. But where there is a moratorium, where they should remain silent is if your husband gets up and he's speaking, you don't be the one that gets up and says it because this is an honor-shame culture and you're going to put him to shame. And so it fits right in the context of all of the different arenas of speech and silence. For the church to be built up, you need a readiness to speak, but you also need a willingness to be silent. Now, Let's stand back and let's just kind of move to our third question. In light of all of this, how, how should this text shape and inform us as God's people? Paul says, if anyone does not acknowledge the things that I say, he says, he, he says the things I say are from the Lord. And so this is, this is God's word. So how should this shape and form us as a people? Well, let me just give you two reflections on that question, how this text should guide us as God's people. And number one, let me just go after the very low-hanging fruit. Number one, the most low-hanging fruit, the obvious application, is if you are married, don't shame your spouse in public. Now, is that something that needs to be said? I'm looking at who says yes. We're going to talk to you afterwards. Yes. Listen, It it is not unusual. In a Sunday school class, in a worship service, or, you know, at church, you're out there talking together in a community group, and instead of talking to your spouse at home, you call them out in front of everyone else, and they are shamed. And very often when we publicly call somebody out, we do it out of our own fragile, insecure egos. Because in that moment, if I can make them look small, it will make me feel tall. And because I'm so fragile and insecure, I need that. I need something to make me feel okay. And so one of the ways I do that is I put everyone else down in public. And so Paul says, look, he's, he's calling us, don't shame your spouse in public. In fact, we could take this a step further. Don't shame anyone in public. But seek to be honorable with your words and how you address people and how you speak to people. It doesn't build anyone up if you're the negative person that's calling this person out and that person out, kind of putting people down. And so, number one, I think Paul is saying, look, if you're married, don't shame your spouse in public. And and we could just take it a step further. Don't shame anyone in public. But the second application I think we can get from this text is um, a little bit more general. And it's an answer to the question, what will build us up as a community? This is so important because we want to be built up in love. We want to grow in the love of Christ and how we treat each other and our character. We want to look more and more like Jesus. And one of the necessary ingredients for a church to grow up in love is it needs to have members who are are both filled with a readiness to speak as well as a willingness to shut up. You know, back uh, when my kids were little and we'd go over to somebody's house, we'd oftentimes, as we were in the car, we would would remind our kids. We'd say, you know, Mr. Smith is going to ask you, how are you kids? How old are you? What do you like to do in school? Or something like this. And don't give them a yes or no answer, but actually try to look them in the eye and engage with them a little bit. Why? Well, because that will make everyone's night better. If you're too into yourself, if you're too preoccupied and too thinking about self and me and I and worried about what everyone else thinks and you go into a a social gathering, you're not really going to be a benefit to anyone. And there's a whole lot of us, and maybe some of you in this room, who when you come to a community group, when you come to Sunday school class, when you come to a gathering with the ladies or the guys, or, or you, you, you're in the you know, chapel service at college or wherever you're at, you're kind of mainly thinking about what everyone else is thinking about you. And when you're preoccupied with you, you're not going to be much of a benefit to anyone else. And so there needs to be a readiness to open ourselves up to God and for the Spirit of God to work through us to speak into the lives of others. And it would be a good discipline if all of us, before we came here on Sunday or before we go to community group or young adults group or wherever you go, if if you just pray, God, use me tonight. Use me today. If you have a verse, if you have a thought, if you have an insight for me to share with somebody else, God, I am a vessel, use me for the sake of others. I don't exist for me, I exist for others. And so some of us need to be exhorted into a readiness to speak. But secondly, there's a whole other uh, group of us who need to learn a willingness to shut up. Could you just raise your hand right now? If, if maybe, maybe you're sitting next to that person. Go ahead and just point them out publicly and shame them. Sometimes shame is good. You know, I was that guy in college. I'd be in a seminary class, and I, I, was, I was like the question guy. I'd always ask all kinds of questions. And um, sometimes I would ask questions because I was interested to know the answer. But other times I would ask questions because my question demonstrated my own astute, sophisticated theological knowledge. My insights, and I wanted to wow the class by offering my great question. What a self-absorbed thing to do. (laughs) Like, that's not for the, and because, I mean, I talk for a living. Most of you are not talkers for a living, though some of you do a good job at it. You could get by on that job if that was your job. And some of you, you know, you're always finishing other people's sentences. Some of you, you're, you're, you're in the group, and people are sharing, and rather than listening to what others are saying, you're thinking about what you're going to say when they finally stop talking, and you can assert your thing. And so I, Paul, I think, would say, look, you need a readiness to speak, but also a willingness to be silent, to shut up, even if you feel like, but God has put this on my heart. Well, maybe there's other people in whose lives God is at work. You don't hold the corner, you don't have the market on the spiritual gifts in this community. And so we need a willingness to be quiet. You know, this week we had our strategic planning meeting, Justin referred to it earlier, and in that time there was was a moment where we were talking about our worship service, and I was up with my little whiteboard, and I was writing down stuff, and I was having us evaluate and critically, you know, kind of like think about how we can grow as a church and grow in our worship services and whatnot and I threw a question out to the floor and asked people to engage, and in that moment, I had to mentally and emotionally like bind myself to my chair and like gag my mouth and just listen. And some of you need to do that. You need to learn how to listen and how to receive. You know, God gave us two ears and one mouth, and that should be an indicator into the degree to which we should be speaking and listening. Listen, let's land the plane like this. Um, Paul here is actually calling us to operate in our life together in small ways that mirror the action of God that was on display in a cosmic way in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You see, in the incarnation, what did the eternal God do? You know, the the scripture says, in the beginning was the word, the eternal word. God is a loquacious God. He is always speaking. He is a speaking God. And the speaking God takes on flesh and blood, and he takes on not just a mouth to talk at people, though. He also takes on ears so that he might listen. And the eternal God who is all-powerful and all-knowing limits himself willingly in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and he walks among us so that in being among us he might be for us and not against us and rescue us from our sin and from our shame and we are invited in our life together to limit ourselves what we could say and do in this moment to limit our boasting and our mouth that is always trying to make other people look impressive at us, and to not do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, to look out not only for our own interests, but for the interests of others and actually come into the worship space and come to our community groups and come to Sunday school and come to our, our, our small groups and whatnot. Come in such a way that we are willing to be for others and not against them, and how we listen and how we speak, and how we treat them. God in Christ laid aside his his prerogatives of his divinity. He lowered himself in humility, and we are invited to reflect the self-humiliation of God in Christ.